As we go to prayer, just sort of mindful of really a theme that I see the Lord weaving through communion and scripture and the songs we've been singing, this idea, this reality of, of rest and surrender and, and Christ's victory, all these things sort of fit together in one way or another. You know, I was thinking just as we were singing and, and as I was listening to Frank a, a moment ago that, you know, when we think of, of, of peace in the midst of conflict or peace at the end of a conflict, it comes through victory. One side just overpowers the other and conquers the other. We know that Christ is a conquering king. But in our own lives, peace comes not when we conquer, but when we surrender. When we surrender to Jesus Christ, when we yield to him for the first time, when we yield to him at the beginning of a new day, when we yield to him, when we are insisting on having things our way rather than yielding and, and, and letting him have his. And all of it goes back to, to what Paul says in Romans 5.1, therefore, Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And simply want to remind you before I pray this morning, just as you hopefully surrender and yield your heart to the Lord, that that peace has been accomplished. That if you know Jesus, there is peace for you to take hold of and to to, to rest in and, and to worship uh, from this morning, that even if there's a hurricane in your life and even if there's a storm you're going through, that there is an eye to that storm and, and that eye is the peace we have because of the cross and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And so, Father, whatever our burden or baggage may be this morning, whatever our particular care may be, whether it's something we've uh, been carrying around with us all week or something that's even happened since we woke up this morning, Father, we really do want to take this moment. I want us to take this moment and hand it back to you. Say, Lord, here is my whatever it is. Lord, here is my heart. Here is my burden. Here is my frustration, my question. I don't want whatever that is that I carried in with me getting in the way of hearing from you. And so, Father, collectively, but much more than that individually, we take this moment and surrender. Say, you are Lord, we are not. Jesus is King and we are servants. We're here not for ourselves to pump ourselves up for another week, but we are here to seek the face of the one who has made peace with God through his cross on on our behalf and say, Lord Jesus, we surrender to you. Father, as we do that, we also now realize we're turning to your word, and we want to pray that you would give us attentive minds and, and hearts, Father, not to what I or any other preacher would ever say, but to what your word says and what it means and how it applies to our lives. And so we, we surrender this next little while together in your word uh, to you. Father, we ask that even as I teach and my brothers and sisters listen, that you would be the one who speaks to our hearts. We would ask with great boldness and great urgency, Lord, that you, as always, would send your spirit to guide us in truth, to guard us from error, to deliver us from all our baggage, and to let us see Jesus. Heavenly Father, may we see Jesus clearly this morning as we go to your word. May we see Jesus only this morning as we go to your word. And in a little while, we want to leave rejoicing. Father, whatever happens between now and then, rejoicing because one thing is true. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, who loved us enough to lay his life down and take it up again. And it's in his name and for his glory we pray, all of God's people together saying, amen, amen. You may be seated. As always, as you're being seated, we'll allow the boys and girls to leave for Children's Church uh, this morning. As always, that's our five-year-olds. Through our second graders, they can go uh, spend some time in God's Word as we are going to do here 
uh, together. And if you are remaining, uh, which most of you are, I want you to grab your Bible this morning and turn in it with me uh, to the Gospel of Mark chapter 1. I want you to make your way in your Bible to Mark chapter 1. And as you're turning there, I, I want to I ask you a question. You can just kind of ponder this question as you're finding your way to Mark 1. And it's simply this, did you rest this week? And by that I mean, of course, if you were here last Sunday, not did you take a nap, did you take a, a, a day off, you may have done those things and more, but have you come today having since last Sunday, since the last time we were together, devoted some time to spiritual refreshment, devoted some time to being with the Lord? I hope you have, and then if you haven't, you'll try it this week so that we come here Uh, having not not to get our weekly dose of time in the Word, but simply to celebrate what He has been doing in and through us all week long. I hope you took uh, last week's message seriously, as I hope you'll take today's message seriously, where we are this morning, beginning, as you may have guessed, and as I told you last Sunday, a brand new series of studies in God's Word. We are going to begin looking together today at the Gospel of Mark. And I'm excited about that for all sorts of reasons as you continue to make your way there. But chief among them is simply because uh, about a year ago, this, this series has sort of, at least in my mind, uh, been brewing for about a year. Because about a year ago, I realized that, that after all my years so far of preaching and teaching God's Word and all the books and studies and series we've been through, it dawned on me, and I don't know why it took 16 years for me to figure it out, I'd never preached through one of the four Gospels. And I thought, man, I would hate to get to heaven and have never preached through at least one of the four Gospels. And I was kind of embarrassed and ashamed by that, so I just began praying sort of casually over the course of the last year, saying, Lord, is that where you want us to go? And if so, which one? And, and all that really sort of came together back as, as I had hoped it would during my August study break, when the Lord really seemed to say, not in audible words, but simply seemed to affirm to my heart, yeah, it's time to look at one of the Gospels, and, and really just for one reason, because it's never a mistake to spend time talking about Jesus. And it's never a bad thing to spend time looking at his life and ministry together. And so that's what we're going to begin doing this morning. And for those of you who like to know this sort of thing, I'm here to tell you I have no idea how long this is going to take us. Not this morning's sermon. I know how long that's going to take us. But how long this series is going to take us. It may take eight months, nine months. It may take a year. We may pause and and, and pick it up at at certain points. Uh, uh, The Lord has simply just said, here's where we're going in a week at a time. I'm going to show you what we need to do. So I don't know if that thrills you or frightens you. It does a little bit of both for me, but that's the way it is, and we're all in this together. And we're going to look this morning at Mark, as I said, chapter 1 in just a moment. But before we do, I want to begin by saying something to you that if you've been around here a while, you've heard me say probably many times before. It's a conviction I believe with all my heart, and it is this, that it is impossible. Everybody say impossible. It is impossible to truly encounter Jesus Christ and remain unchanged. It is impossible to truly encounter Jesus Christ for yourself and walk away unchanged. I have seen it in the Bible, and I've seen it in people's lives. Whether it happens in the context of Sunday morning worship, Wednesday night prayer meeting, whether it happens in a time of personal Bible reading or worship or prayer, or collectively in the company of God's people in one way or another. What I'm here to tell you this morning as we begin is this. A personal encounter with Jesus is always going to leave a mark. You are never going to be the same once it has happened. It's going to move you either closer to him or it's going to push you further from him. It's going to deepen your devotion or it's going to harden your resistance. But encounters with Jesus, uh, and I think if you think about it for yourself, you'll know this is true. Encounters with Jesus are not a zero-sum game. No one walks away the same as they were before. 
And I say that to you, yeah, it's a good thing, but I say that to you as well because as we begin this new sermon series this morning, I believe that is a premise, in my case, a conviction that is going to be tested among us like never before because every single week for who knows how long, we are going to be personally in the Scriptures encountering Jesus. Because as it says up on the screen behind me, today we are going to start, this is the theme of our new series, following the Son, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, through Mark's account of his earthly life and ministry. And this morning we're going to do that by starting with one whole verse of Scripture. We're going to look at Mark chapter 1, verse 1. That's the only Scripture we're going to look at in any sort of depth. And while, yes, that means this is largely an introductory sermon... No, that does not mean it's largely unimportant or irrelevant at all. Some of you may be excited by the prospect of an introduction. Others of you may say, now just get to the meat. I think there's meat here for all of us this morning, even in this one single verse. Because it's here, if you look at your Bible, Mark 1.1, in the span of 12 English words in my translation, in the Greek it's actually only seven This is how the book begins. This is what the Word of God says. Mark writes... The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's so short, I'm going to say it again. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And whether you realize it or not, having simply looked at it for a matter of a few seconds so far, in that statement, we are being told something profound, and it is this, and this is the first major thing I want you to grab hold of this morning, that the book of Mark, the gospel of Mark, first and foremost, we need to understand is more than just a biography. Though it tells us the story of Jesus' earthly life, the book of Mark is much more than just a biography. And I know that because of three things that that Mark says in this verse. The first of which is as follows. He says that it is the beginning of, everybody say, the gospel. He says it is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, many of us hear that word, gospel, perhaps if we've been around the church very long at all, the first thing that comes to mind, maybe the the biggest thing that comes to mind, is something like this, that Jesus Christ, the gospel is the fact that the message that Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God, died for our sins and rose from the dead, so that anyone and everyone who believes in him will be saved. We think of that, we know that as the message of the gospel, which it is, and it's true. It's the message that I hope has changed your life. But when Mark used the term here, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, that word, that term gospel, was not yet, in the way that we know it, not yet quite loaded with all of that rich meaning. Instead, the term, which which in the original language simply means, the word gospel means good news, that was Mark's way of saying that what follows, gang, as you read the story I've written down for you, is not an exhaustive account of the 33 years of life and ministry Jesus Christ spent on the planet. It's not going to tell us everything we want to know about him or everything we could know about him as a traditional or typical biography might do. For example, you'll discover this next Sunday. He doesn't tell us the story of Jesus' birth. Now, we spend like four months a year, every year, celebrating Jesus' birth, right? We prepare for it and we play music for it and we get all excited about it. Mark doesn't think it's important, at least not important to what he's here to do. Because he's not here to give us a biography. He's here to give us good news. He's here to give us good news. And so what I want you to understand before we even start reading the story 
is that what we are entering into is more than a biography. It is instead a, if I can put it this way, a thoughtfully assembled album of snapshots. Pictures and instances that together convey to us who this man Jesus was. Why this man Jesus came. And the difference this man Jesus can make in our lives. Mark says, I'm not here to give you a biography, I'm here to tell you good news. Good news. Now, there is some uncertainty as to why he says in the verse, if you look at it again, that it is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Some people think that when he uses that word beginning, he's talking about the introduction, which we'll look at next week, where John the Baptist comes along to prepare the way for him. Others say, no, that's, that's a title of the whole book, that the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is Mark's way of saying this whole book that is about Jesus, but when you get to the end of the book, it's not the end of the story. There's more to be told. Jesus changing lives for 2,000 years ever since. I don't know which one is right or if either is right, but the bottom line is this. It's more than a biography. It is a declaration of what? Of good news. Good news, number one, gospel of. Secondly, good news about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Everybody say Jesus. Everybody say Jesus Christ anyway. I guess if we say his name, big things are going to happen. I don't know. Now I'm scared. All right, here we go. Jesus Christ. It is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, I hope you know, and I'm only half kidding when I say it, that, that the name Jesus Christ is not the formal name that was printed in the first century on Jesus' social security card. That Jesus was his first name, and that somehow Christ was his last name. That's not the case at all. Instead, that name, that designation, Jesus Christ, is, is really two things. First of all, it is his name. His real first name was Jesus, the the birth story of Jesus tells us that, that his mother and father, Mary and Joseph, that is the name they gave him. And it was a common name back in, in first century Israel. However, Christ was not his last name. It was a title. It was a designation. It was, a, it was a, a, uh, the title given to him that was filled with all sorts of rich and ancient meaning. Literally, the word Christ means anointed one. Literally, the word Christ means Messiah. And, and so what we need to understand when we read this very first verse, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, or Jesus who was, who is the Christ, what Mark is telling us from chapter 1, verse 1, is that the one, here's what he's saying, guys, the one about whom I'm writing, the story that I am about to begin telling is a story of the one who is, in fact, Israel's promised Messiah. He is the one we've waited for since the Garden of Eden. He is the one we've waited for through years of slavery and bondage and success and failure. He is the one the prophets wrote about and said was coming. This is the gospel, the good news of Jesus, who is the Christ. But it gets better than that. There's a third thing he tells us in this verse, and it's this, that it is the beginning of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. Jesus, who is the promised one, who is also the Son of God is also the Son of God. Now that language, Son of God, that's language today we toss around rather freely. We talk about Jesus as the Son of God, as believers anyway, we talk about it all the time. But what we need to understand, if we can slip ourselves back into the sandals of a first century Jew or a first century anybody, is, is that, that it meant much more or it was no small thing back then. Instead, as Tim Keller writes in his commentary on the Gospel of Mark, 
He says, what we need to understand is that when Mark said, this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, he was making, Keller says, quote, an astonishingly bold claim that went beyond the popular understanding of the Messiah. You see, Israel was expecting a Messiah. They were expecting someone who would come and deliver them, deliver them from Rome, deliver them from trouble, deliver them from their enemies, and, and, and they were looking for a king who would come with a sword and do all of that and more. But most Jews, at least in the first century, were not expecting <laughs> that that Messiah, that deliverer, would be God himself. But Mark's saying, oh, no, 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 it, it was. And it is. This is the good news about Jesus, who is the Christ, and furthermore, the Son of God. He was claiming for Jesus, Keller says, outright divinity. This is one we'd better listen to. This is one to whom we'd better pay attention. This is one who is unlike any other person who's ever walked the planet. What am I saying to you? I'm saying what I said already. The Gospel of Mark is more than a biography. It's more than a story about one man who made a difference. It's the story of one who came to this planet by God's eternal, perfect design. And whose life and the things he accomplished, and ultimately, as we know, his work on the cross, as we've been reminded already this morning, has done more to transform history and ultimately all of eternity than any other human life. This is more than a biography. This is good news. It's good news. And as such, what I want to show you in the time we have left, that's sort of our our introduction to Mark chapter 1, verse 1, as we prepare to enter into this study of following Jesus through Mark's gospel. But what I want to do in the time we have left, and this is where it sort of drifts into more introductory material, but I don't want you to tune out because there's some really important stuff here along the way. What I want to show you in the time we have left as a result of understanding, at least in, in part, what this first verse means I want to show you six things or tell you six things about the gospel of Mark. Because it is a gospel, it's more than a biography. There are six things and, that we need, that I believe we need to know about going in. Because there are six things we're going to encounter time and again as we work our way through the story. There are things that are going to come up. And if we understand or at least begin to grapple with them now, they'll make much more sense and begin to fit together when we encounter them through the stories and accounts that Mark gives us. So there are six things I want you to know about the gospel of Mark, and I've checked, I can get this done in time, so hang with me, number one. The first thing I want you to know that, that, that we need to know about the gospel of Mark, because it is more than a biography, is that it is, number one, a story of immediacy. I'm going to give you six words is what I'm really going to do. The gospel of Mark is a story of immediacy. And if you don't like that word immediacy, you can substitute urgency and it will do the same. Because something you're going to discover as we begin, and if you've read Mark's gospel before, or even if you've read ahead into it already this week, something you're going to quickly discover for yourself about Mark is that he has a favorite word and it comes up all the time. And Mark's favorite word, by my estimation, having read through the book several times again recently, is immediately. Everybody say immediately. Immediately is Mark's favorite word. I counted. He uses it 39 times. Not only does he use it 39 times, he uses variations of it about another half dozen times on top of that. In fact, I'm just going to give a true confession. I get annoyed reading Mark's gospel because he uses the same word so often, but it's there, and it's there for a reason. He uses this word over and over for a reason because he wants to communicate something. He wants us to recognize something. 
And what he wants us to recognize is this. The reason it matters that we know that he uses that word immediately more than almost any other is because what it implies, what it communicates to us, is that in those three and a half years of ministry, which is all Mark covers, just the the years of his ministry, Jesus was locked in with laser-like intensity, with laser-like focus on his mission of bringing salvation to the world. You're going to find he does a miracle, and then Mark says, and immediately he was on to the next one. And then immediately he began to teach the crowd, and then immediately he goes on to the next city. There is a sense of urgency to the gospel. Because what does the Bible tell us? As Frank reminded us, today is the day of salvation. Pay attention immediately. This is good news, but it is urgent news that we dare not neglect or push off for another day. It's a gospel, number one, of immediacy. As such, it is secondly a a story of activity. It's our second word. You're going to discover rather quickly, at least I think so, if I do my job and you do yours, you're going to discover very quickly this is a gospel or a story about activity. Because, well, the gospel of Mark is noticeably shorter than the other three gospels of Matthew, Luke, and John. I mean, if you were to stack them all up next to each other, Mark's is way down here. The others are are, are much more massive volumes just in terms of, of content. Mark's gospel is much shorter than all of the other three. What you're going to discover, or what I hope to show you as we walk through it, is that it is far more action-packed than any of the other three happen to be. For example, as you go through Mark's gospel, something you discover is that he records only four of Jesus' parables. Now, Jesus told some great stories, right? He has some great parables that, that were meant to teach spiritual truth, and we have lots and lots of them between the four gospels. Mark only tells us four of them, but you know what Mark does do instead? He gives us 19 of Jesus' miracles, 19 of them. He tells, spends much more time not telling us what Jesus said, but showing us what Jesus did. It's all about action with Mark. It's all about activity. It's all about Jesus coming and doing. Not only that, uh, while several times we'll see as we work our way through the gospel, Mark will point out, he will inform us that Jesus was teaching the crowds. He was preaching to the masses. You know what Mark almost never does? (laughs) He almost never tells us what Jesus said. (laughs) He just says, Jesus was teaching the crowd, and, and a man came up to him. Jesus was preaching to the masses, and Peter came along and said, did something, and doesn't often tell us the content of Jesus' teaching. And and so really what I'm saying to you, and hopefully this is a great encouragement to some, is that if you're an action person, Mark is your gospel. If you like activity, Mark is is a version of the story that should appeal to you very much. Because number one, it's a story of immediacy. Number two, it's a story of activity. But with that said, and at the same time, somewhat ironically, a third thing to know about the gospel of Mark is that it is also a story of great humility. Mark's gospel, and we'll see this time and again, is a story that models, that exemplifies great humility. Because one of the real oddities, and I believe this is an oddity, and and honestly, it's something I don't, uh, just even before I tell you what it is, it's something I don't fully understand. I'm hoping by the time we're done, I've figured it out, because I've tried and tried, and I don't understand it yet. But one of the real oddities of Mark's gospel as, and this is recorded elsewhere, Mark does a lot of it, is, is he shows us or he tells us that after Jesus would do one of these great miracles, Jesus would do something spectacular. He'd heal the sick. He'd raise the dead. He'd, he'd deliver someone from demonic oppression. You know what Jesus, Mark tells us this all the time, would immediately do next? Immediately. He would look at that person, look him in the eye, say, now, don't tell anybody what I just did. 
Don't tell anyone what just happened to you. Keep it quiet. Keep it on the... And I don't understand that. I mean, I would want, I think... Now, now nobody ever listened to him. They all go out and tell people anyway. That's just the way the story goes. But Jesus is constantly saying, no, 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 no. You think, I think maybe what he thinks, you think about what I've done for you. You realize what I've done for you, and then I'll go do it. But I don't know for sure. But he's always saying, don't, just keep a lid on it for a while. And again, I don't fully understand that. But it's a gospel as such that just, it just sort of radiates humility. And, and not only that, there's, there's also nearly universal agreement. One thing that is clear about Mark's gospel for sure that almost everyone who's ever studied it in a scholarly way agrees on, is that there's one verse in it that does more to express what Mark's good news message is all about. There's one verse in this gospel that almost everyone ultimately comes back to and says, this is the verse that unlocks the mystery or the story of Mark's gospel, what it's all about, and it's this, Mark 10.45. I'm not going to put it on the screen. You've got to write it down for yourself. Mark 10.45, where Jesus, in the midst of his teaching, says the following to his disciples. This is the key verse of the entire gospel of Mark. We need to know it and learn it and remember it as we go through. He says, as he is washing the feet of his disciples, quote, guys, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to what? Serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. That's what? That's humility. And give his life as a ransom for many. And that's something that takes us to a fourth thing you need to know about Mark's gospel. Number one, it's a gospel of immediacy. Number two, it is a gospel, therefore, of activity. It is thirdly also a gospel of humility. But because of that humility and really because of that central focus on Jesus coming, not to be served but to serve, and give his life a ransom for many, the fourth thing you need to know about Mark's gospel is that it is a story of great intensity. It's a story. It's, a, it's, it's good news that's delivered with great intensity. And what I mean by that is this. And this is where we're really getting into not just facts and figures and trivia and observations, but really the meat of what Mark's gospel is all about. Because while one of the really interesting things about Mark's gospel is that while it's composed of 16 total chapters in all, anybody can look at their Bible and see that, it's actually near the end of of chapter 8. And I want you to turn there. Hold your place at Mark 1-1 if you'd like, but go to Mark chapter 8. Because near the end of Mark chapter 8, so almost, at least in terms of chapters, the halfway point, the midpoint of the book, a dramatic and significant shift takes place. Because up until now, up until Mark chapter 8, Jesus has been going around doing his his thing. He's been been performing his miracles and teaching the masses and and instructing his disciples and all the things that we associate with the life and ministry of of Jesus here on earth. But then in Mark 8, 31, all of a sudden, for the first time ever, he tells them something he's never said before. And it's this. Mark 8, 31, we are told the following, that he, Jesus, began to teach them began, this is the first time it ever comes up, that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and he will be killed. And after three days, rise again, and it says at the beginning of verse 32, and he was stating this matter plainly. 
Now, once that verse, once we encounter that verse, Mark wrote that down, as I said, a major shift takes place in his gospel. Because from this point forward, everything Mark writes comes to us under the shadow of the cross. All of it is marked by the shadow of the cross. In fact, the final six chapters, again, Mark has 16 chapters, the final six chapters, nearly 40% of everything he wrote is exclusively devoted to the last week of Jesus' earthly life. Six of the 16 chapters are all about his his betrayal and his death and his burial and and his resurrection. And and I don't know what you call that. I call that intensity, okay? Again, it's not a biography in the exhaustive sense of the word that we're going to get every detail from every year and every moment of Jesus' life. No, Mark is writing with a point. Mark is writing to deliver a message. He wants to get good news across to us. And what that good news is all encapsulated in is this, that the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. That's why he came. So Mark says, let's talk about it. Let's spend the majority, really if you begin back in 831, of of what I'm delivering to you, Thinking, talking, dwelling, responding, seeking to understand at a deeper and more personal way exactly why Jesus came and the difference it makes for us. And the reason why we should pay attention to it, the reason why we should pay attention to it, along with the rest of the book, but especially this part from 831 on, through the end of chapter 16 is because of a fifth thing we need to understand about Mark's gospel. And this may sound odd for me to say at first, but follow me. I'm going I'm to take you somewhere that I, I believe is going to be where really the Lord wants us to land this morning, and it's this. The fifth thing to know about Mark's gospel is it is a gospel, a story of authenticity, okay? It is a story, fifthly, of authenticity. You see, one of the really curious facts about Mark's gospel is, is that until, and this is just sort of some historical perspective, until about the middle of the 19th century, so 1840, 50, 60, something like that, the Gospel of Mark, among the four Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Gospel of Mark was, was, was easily the least popular, the least trusted, and as a result, the most neglected among the four Gospels. Mark was like the, kind of like the kid brother who's always tagging along. Well, I guess he belongs to the family, so we can't leave him out entirely. But, but literally, from the 4th century to the 19th century, almost no scholarly work whatsoever was done with Mark's Gospel. There are almost no commentaries about it. There was no real investigation of it. People didn't pay attention to it for almost 1,900 years. There's a lot of reasons for that. Chief among them is the fact, and if you've read the Gospels, maybe you've picked up or maybe you've heard this before, is that 95%, 95% of what Mark writes in his Gospel is repeated or replicated almost word for word in the Gospels of Matthew and Luke. Every, almost everything he says is unoriginal. It's found somewhere else. And, and so the conclusion was, because 95% of what Mark says is repeated either in Matthew or in Luke or in both, uh, the scholarly assumption was this. Uh, Mark's kind of a knockoff. He, he kind of took what they did and distilled it down. He's the Cliff Notes version of Jesus' life and ministry. He's the Reader's Digest abridgment. If you're short on time and really don't want to get too overworked, read Mark's gospel, but it, it's kind of the it's kind of the tag-along kid brother. And so nobody paid, really, really, nobody paid attention to it. 
for almost 1,900 years. But then, in the mid-1800s, something happened. I'm sure, I, have, I am convinced by God's design. Scholars began to give Mark's gospel another look. And, and the more they looked at it, and the deeper they dug, maybe they just realized how long it had been neglected and that that was a, a problem, they concluded something, that Mark's was not the last gospel to be written as some sort of knockoff of, of the real work the other guys did. Mark's, they realized, was actually the first gospel to be written. That it was the most historic of all the gospels in terms of its, its, its accuracy and how far back that it goes. In fact, they came to the conclusion that the gospel of Mark was written within 30 years of Jesus' resurrection. Now think about that. It may not wow you, but I mean, we read authoritative biographies of Abraham Lincoln. He lived now almost 200 years ago, right? Julius Caesar, 2,000 years ago. Here it is within 30 years of Jesus' life. They realized Mark was writing down the story of Jesus, leading them to this conclusion, that, that it wasn't Mark got his information from Matthew and Luke, but that Matthew and Luke got their information from Mark. To which you say, that's cute, so what? Say, so what? So glad you asked, let me tell you. It leads to another question. Because if Matthew and Luke got their information from Mark, here's the question, where did Mark get his information? Where did Mark learn the story of Jesus? And, and the deeper, we know the answer to the question now, the deeper people dug and, and the further back they went and the more they investigated uh, the nature of Mark's story, they realized something, they came to a conclusion. Mark got his information from the most inside source of all. He got it from the apostle Peter. Mark got his information about Jesus' life and ministry from the Apostle Peter, and here's why that matters. Okay, again, this is more than trivia. I'm not just throwing facts for you to impress your friends when you get home. Okay, this matters for a reason. Because the point of all four Gospels is clear. It is to introduce us to who? To Jesus. The point of all four Gospels, Mark included, is to introduce us to the person of Jesus. Why? So that we might repent of our sins and trust him as Savior. That we might believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. And all four Gospels, Mark included, make it abundantly clear that, that in the time Jesus spent here on planet Earth, Peter was one of three people who knew him better than anybody else. Peter, James, and John were the inner circle. I would, in fact, suggest that perhaps no one knew Jesus better and Peter. And, and Peter's all over this story. In Mark 1.16, the first words out of Jesus' mouth are spoken to the apostle, who now the apostle Peter. He was the first disciple to meet him. In Mark 8.29, we were there just a couple of moments ago. It was Peter, Mark says, who was the first one to publicly and clearly acknowledge Jesus as the Christ as the Messiah. You get to Mark 16, to the end of the story, and, and the day of the resurrection, and Jesus, upon rising from the dead, it says, go and tell, he says to Mary, he says, go and tell his disciples, and tell Peter that I've risen from the dead. And in between that, from beginning, middle, and end, throughout the rest of the gospel, the rest of Mark's gospel, details are given, insights are provided, stories are told, expressions on people's faces are shared that only someone with Peter's access would have known and seen. In fact, Tim Keller, again, in his commentary on Mark, writes, he says that as you read the entire gospel of Mark, he says, quote, nothing happens where Peter isn't present. He's there on every page. He's there for every scene. He's there for every miracle and moment that we're told. He says, in fact, the entire gospel of Mark is almost certainly Peter's eyewitness testimony. To which, again, you say, repeat after me, so what? So what? 
So what? Why does it matter? Well, it matters because, the reason we should care about that is because it means that what we're about to enter into is a story that can be trusted. It is a story that is true. It is a story and an account of Jesus' life that is reliable, and not only reliable, maybe even more importantly to us, relevant to every single person who ever reads it, because... Who, based on what we know of Jesus' ministry in the Bible, who in the time Jesus spent on earth had their life more radically transformed from start to finish than Peter? Who was more changed by Jesus than his relationship with Peter, than Peter was through his relationship with Jesus? From rough and tumble fisherman to doubtful walker on the water to the miserable pathetic denier on the night of the betrayal, on the morning, the day of Pentecost, Jesus' chief spokesman. What am I saying to you? Peter, what I'm saying is this. Peter is exhibit A. Exhibit A of what trusting Christ as Savior can do. What an encounter with Jesus Christ can accomplish. And more than anything else, that's what I mean by calling Mark's gospel a story of authenticity. Because it doesn't just tell us who Jesus was and what he did. It tells us, it reveals to us the transforming power of what encountering Jesus, can, the, the change that it can make in one human life. And that's why the sixth and final thing I want you to know about it this morning, that the gospel of Mark, the story of Mark, is a story of invitation of invitation. Because if you peek ahead, if you're back in chapter 1 at verse 17, you find that the first words Jesus ever spoke to his disciples, and he spoke it, according to this story, to the apostle Peter first. The first words Jesus ever spoke were the words, follow me. And while that word follow does not appear as often as immediately in the course of Mark's gospel, it's there a lot. We're going to encounter the call to follow Jesus. We're going to be told that people were following Jesus. We're going to be told that the masses followed Jesus wherever we went over and over and over again. And that word follow, as I said, it it appears often throughout the story of Mark's gospel. is the call that Peter answered. It's the call that Mark answered. Most people believe through Peter's preaching. And it's the call that millions more in the last 2,000 years have willingly answered as well. And let me ask you something. If you've answered the call to follow Jesus, has your life ever been the same? Are you different because you encountered Jesus? I bet you are. If not, you haven't met Jesus because you can't encounter Jesus Christ and walk away unchanged. So here's the thing I want us to remember, and here's where we'll pull it all together, and then we'll pray. The thing I want us to remember most, I don't care if you take all the trivia and information home with you and remember it and can recite it for your family or not, but what I want us all to remember most today, and it is why I've titled this series, Follow the Son, is that while the call to trust Jesus as Savior is a one-time thing, you do it once and you're saved, right? Believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. That's the call to trust Jesus. The call to follow Jesus is a lifelong endeavor. As long as we're breathing, we're supposed to follow As long as we're present and accounted for, we're supposed to follow. As long as we're here, we are invited and beckoned and urged to follow the Son. So before we close, here's the question I want to ask you. If, well, assuming, we'll just assume, okay, that for the the duration of this series, the next 8, 9, 12 months, let's just round up for, for the sake of argument, we're going to spend an hour a week walking with Jesus, right? 40 minutes, 45 minutes, an hour. And that's not, that's not counting what you're going to do in small group as well, because then you're going to go home and discuss it with your friends. 
But let's just assume that for the next year, we're going to spend together about an hour a week following, walking together with Jesus through Mark's gospel. And, and therefore, if what I said at the beginning is true, it's impossible to truly encounter Jesus Christ and remain unchanged, here's my question. Should we not expect, say expect, not hope, not dream, not wish, not maybe, should we not expect that by the time we're done, we are radically different followers of Jesus Christ? Should we, not, if we spend an hour a week together with Jesus, should we not expect we will be radically changed people? That our love for him will be deeper. That our devotion to him will be stronger. That our commitment to speak of him with others will have grown. Not incrementally, because Jesus doesn't do things incrementally ultimately in your life. He does things astronomically over the course of time. It will be astronomically different people simply because we were walking partners with Jesus. Walking with him through Mark's gospel. Because you see this invitation, follow me, that he gave Peter has been extended to us. It's a gospel, a story of invitation. And that's why as we close, I want to do two things. First of all, I want to give you the big idea, because I didn't last week, and that probably irritated somebody, all right? So let me give you the big idea of today's message. Here it is. It's simple. The big idea of this introduction to Mark's gospel is simply this. It's the declaration that walk with Jesus, and you'll never be the same. Walk with Jesus, and you'll never be the same. Now, once you've written that down, let it settle in your mind, your heart, whatever you're going to do with it. I want us to go to prayer. In fact, I'm just going to invite the team to come back up to get ready to do our last song. But as they do that, as you just, where you are, bow your head, and I want you to do that right now as we go to prayer. If you're willing to at least accept the premise that walking with Jesus is something that means we'll never be the same Here's the question that I want to invite you to ponder and then answer before the Lord before we stand up and sing. And I guess if you want to open your eyes, we'll throw it up on the screen so you can see what the question is. Here's the question. Lord, how do you want to change me? Not, Lord, here's how I want you to change me. How do you want to change me? How do you want to change me, Lord, as I follow Jesus through Mark's gospel? What do you want to teach me? What do you want to show me? How do you want to purify and refine me? What do you want me to pick up that I've neglected? What do you want me to lay down that I'm clinging to and shouldn't be? Lord, if I'm going to walk with Jesus an hour a week for the next year, how do you want to change me as we walk together? How do you want to make me more like your son? Let's just, as we just stay in a posture, or attitude of prayer, let's stand because we're going to sing here to close our service. Why don't you just stand as you are, where you are, and before I pray, I want you just to take a moment, set that question for the Lord, and if nothing else, as we sang earlier about surrender, if you are ready, but only voluntarily, just quietly in your heart, say to the Lord, Lord, I am ready for you to change As I walk with Jesus, Lord, I want you to change me. You settle that in your heart with him. I'll settle it in mine. And then we will trust that as we walk with him, our lives will never be the same. Father, our lives aren't changed by the quality of the preaching. Our lives aren't changed by, the, by simply the, the quality or the nature or the assortment of songs we sing on a given Sunday. 
Our lives aren't ultimately changed for eternity simply by fellowship and and standing when it's time to stand and sitting when it's time to sit and praying when it's time to pray. Our lives are changed by personal encounters with Jesus Christ. And Father, if I do nothing else well over the next year as we walk through Mark's gospel together, Father, I pray that together you'll give me the grace to point my brothers and sisters and myself to Jesus, that we might encounter him and be changed that we might be different people by the time we're done than we were when we started, that this would be a day where we can look back and say, I started walking with Jesus in a way like never before. And as a result, my life has never been the same. Father, these are bold things. These are audacious claims, and they are things only you can do. But in the name of Jesus, we believe you can do them. And Father, those of us who've settled it in our hearts this morning are, are trusting that you will honor that request, that surrender to say, Lord Jesus, change me. Father, as always, take the things of truth spoken here this morning and seal them to our hearts. Take all the rest, let it be forgotten, so that we leave truly fixed only on Jesus, in whose name we pray and who we now worship together. Amen.